Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Erin O'Hare, the neighborhoods reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow, a hyper-local nonprofit news website serving Charlottesville, Virginia. She's also been their equity reporter. Erin has also been an arts and culture writer. She enjoys writing about people and cultures typically left, typically left out of mainstream narratives, something we particularly like here. Erin, hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This is an honor. What's your journalism origin story? Well, it was pretty much accidental. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Like as soon as I could read, I was like, I want to, I want to make these, these things, these books. But that really, the form of that has changed over time. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author illustrator. Then I wanted to write novels. Then I wanted to write poetry. I went to grad school to like study Shakespearean era drama and thought I would teach that at the college level but academia really wasn't for me and so I started looking for other ways to write to always be learning and I did an internship at UV the University of Virginia's alumni magazine which kind of led me to other publications in town via freelancing which led to my job at SIVA Weekly which led to all these other things and like in those times too, I was not always working full-time. So I was doing all these other things too. Like I was nannying or working at a coffee shop or, you know, working a part-time job on top of the journalism stuff. But, you know, I was laid off from SIVA Weekly during the pandemic. And that is how I landed at Charlottesville tomorrow. Basically, I didn't leave town and this job came open and I was very fortunate to be given this position. <laughs> was there anything in your upbringing that would have lent itself to being a storyteller? And I'll give as one example, the fact that it says <laughs> in your bio, I've never met a stranger. Yes. So I'm from the Boston area in Massachusetts and my family talks a lot. There's a lot of them. They all love to talk and they love to tell stories about one another, about relatives who are alive or, or have passed, about people they know. And I think that's definitely a big part of it. Like my whole family is very interested in people. And my grandfather, who is almost 90, he is friendly to everybody. He will talk to anyone. And I think I spent a lot of time with him when I was a kid. And I, I think I just learned that from him, that like your life is really rich and full when you can talk to a lot of people and listen to people, right? Like that's a big part of it. And so I think I think that's a big part of it for sure. My sounds, like a, sounds like an ideal fit. All right, so <laughs> give us some more comprehensive introduction to Charlottesville Tomorrow. It's seavilletomorrow.org. I've noticed it's a small staff. The editor-in-chief seems to cover stories in a pinch. Just give us kind of a sense of, of who that organization is and what it does? Sure. So it's been around for about a decade, maybe a little longer, and it started as something very different. It was very meetings-based coverage. But over the last few years, I think in, in part because of what our community experienced with Unite the Right in the summer of 2017, and also the, the degradation of the local news landscape, the newsroom, and it and the organization's executive director and board really realized that like 
there's there's a different type of journalism that could be done here. That's the sense that I get. I wasn't here when that happened, but that is what's guiding us going forward. So our principles are truth, equity, and community. Those are our big news values. So that's something that our small staff thinks about all the time. Currently, we do have an editor-in-chief, Anjali Shah, and she does do some reporting. We have a managing editor, Jesse Higgins, who is our managing editor, story editor, but also is on the health beat, community health and wellness and safety. Our education reporter, Tamika Jean-Charles, and then I do neighborhoods. And we're hoping to get someone back on the government beat soon. We had a reporter leave for a larger publication this past year. So what does a neighborhoods reporter do? Oh my gosh, I do so many things. I can't even keep track. So I think housing is the biggest part of what I do right now. And that's sort of my own, that's what I've been bringing to the beat, like pretty much everywhere in the U.S. and all over the world. We have a housing crisis. It is, we don't have enough housing. And because of that, prices are just skyrocketing. At my last job, I could barely afford to live in Charlottesville. Like it was kind of a miracle that I was able to find the rent that I did. And so, you know, you hear that over and over and over and over again. And when I was thinking about this beat and what it could be, it it kind of started on the equity side. I was like housing, 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 because it affects so many things in our life. It affects our health. It affects what kind of job we can have. Do you have a car? Can you drive to this place or do you have to walk? Do you you know, our bus system isn't great. So, you know, what happens there? So housing was definitely, it's the biggest part. And I try to look at housing from an equity perspective. So who are the people who are really being left behind in this housing market, right? It's people who are unhoused, people who are low income, people on a fixed income. So for me, those are, you know, with our news values, it's like, who are the most vulnerable people? Who are the people who are most affected? So that's that's what I focus on mostly. But I also do transportation stuff. So like mobility, how are the sidewalks? <laughs> you know, are, they, are they messed up? Yes. How's the bus system? What's happening there? You know, we're doing a rezoning throughout the city. So I've been covering that policy stuff with housing and all that stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, I always have so many more stories than I could ever cover. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds a lot like uh, news you can use kind of pieces, for lack of a better term. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. It's like, okay, you know, Charlottesville passed this, like, 200-page comprehensive plan. You know, the the 48,000 people who live in the city are not going to read that. So what are the five main things? What are the five or six most important things that came out of a mobility assessment. And then, you know, so on top of that, I do a lot of long form and deep dive reporting as well, which I think is my strong point, actually. So that's, yeah, that that's what I like the most, but. And uh, another thing that you've done, the Changing Charlottesville series, which looks at neighborhoods like Jefferson Park and Star Hill. Can you explain what that was? That started off as a capstone project with the University of Virginia's School of Data Science. So it was our previous editor had thought that it would be a good idea for us to partner on that because data journalism is, you know, 
important and rising and we'd never really done it. And so he had this idea and we worked on the application together, but it was mostly his project. And then he left and then it became my project. And then the project we wanted to do was impossible because of what data is not and is available. So it just kind of evolved into this dashboard, which is actually really cool that we haven't published yet, but I'm excited too, about housing affordability in Charlottesville and also how the city's changed over time. So it's become this changing Charlottesville series where over the course of a year, we will look at all 19 of the city's like planning neighborhoods. And we we're looking at, you know, how it's changed in demographics by age, race and ethnicity, income and occupation from 2013 to 2020. Because 2013 is the first year that the census data is available online. <laughs> so this this is this sounds like it, it's evolving into a people centric story from what was originally a data centric story. Yes, which has made it into a very unwieldy <laughs> beast of a project. I think it's made it a better project, but it has also taken me away from other stories that. I really want to write. So I'm always kind of balancing the like, what's the important thing? But I'm I'm working with a, a young data scientist who's really great and passionate about the project. And I'm learning so much. And when when you see things like, you know, Star Hill, one of the neighborhoods that you mentioned, you know, that was a majority black neighborhood. That that's what it always was. And in the past 10 years, black residents have basically moved out like a hundred black residents left that neighborhood and you know we're putting that information out there and and just like encouraging people to think about that like what what that's shocking some in in some ways or like we're having a lot of conversations about race and equity in Charlottesville and when you see that you know there are neighborhoods where like the average income is you know very, very, very high, but then there are other neighborhoods in the city that it, it's not. It, it, and we're all living within 10 square miles of one another. So that that's kind of the the idea. But yeah, I'm doing a lot of research on like the history and interviewing residents and that sort of thing. So it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine. Now I bring up the following story, not necessarily to make fun, but just to show the different types of things that a journalist will do. The headline from October 24th, 2022, the downtown mall is getting its first ever public bathroom and community members are ecstatic. I'm guessing that this story got a lot of readers. It was very comprehensive. It had some very funny quotes, the, the best of which was, this isn't the first time the city has tried to answer pleas for a place to pee on the mall. Can you tell <laughs> us about that one? Sure. So I love doing this kind of, of reporting because it's like, it, it seems like not a big deal, right? Like a, ba a public bathroom, right? But there's so much more to it than that. And this is something my editors tease me about all the time. And they're like, we send you off to like, write like a 200 word thing about whatever. And you come back with all this, like this great story. So that one, it is a big deal because there was no public restroom on the downtown mall. And like, and it's an economic center. It's where a lot of businesses and coffee shops and that sort of thing are. And, you know, the city wants everyone to go down there and, you know, walk around and whatever. But unless you were buying a coffee or eating at a restaurant, you had no place to go to the bathroom. Like 
that's kind of ridiculous for a place that that is seen as like a vibrant like center of town so I got all of that reporting basically done in a day because I just went downtown and talked to people and what I did was I, I did prioritize people who who maybe normally wouldn't be asked about this I asked people waiting at bus stops I asked business owners who weren't old white people who and so I, I also we have a day shelter for unhoused community members on the downtown mall and I asked some of those folks as well because they don't have anywhere else to go to the bathroom so those were the voices that I made sure to include and I just I, I luck into these situations I think because I just go out and I talk to anybody but the first person I talked to was the the man with the medical condition I was like, going to bring that up. How, how lucky is I? <laughs> but, he was... but, so this is, I think this is kind of cool because this is like instructive for a young aspiring reporter, right? Okay. Like that you said that you were lucky, but I found particularly in my job too, that sometimes you make your own luck by doing what you said, which is going and, ta and just talking to strangers. There are no strangers. I'm going to just, in, in my case, I work a lot with data. So it's interrogating the data down to the most minute detail. In your case, it's talking to as many strangers as you can get. Yes. And the that guy, like I, we used to live in the same neighborhood. And so I would see him around. We'd kind of like acknowledge one another, but we had never had a conversation. And when I introduced myself, he's like, yeah, I've seen you around. And he's like, and I was like, well, you know, that that's great. He's like, it's it's good that I see you around and you're a reporter because like I, I get the sense that you you know what's going on and I was like yes thank you and he was very open with me and I really appreciated that and I think he's someone who you know a lot of people see because he's always riding the bus but maybe doesn't get asked what what he thinks and a in lot. a city of forty five thousand that's an important person uh, it so, is. Yep. Yeah, and we have, you know, there's even more people in the surrounding counties, like Charlottesville, sort of the, the economic and activity center of of a much bigger area. But yeah, it's it's a small it's a small city. It's a small place. So yeah. I think it was it was fun. It was fun for me to write too. It hopefully won't take this the wrong way, but it reminded me of a tweet I saw from a writer, Shea Van Hoy, who said, one part of journalism is working on a 4,000 story for weeks that a thousand people read, and then working on a story for a day about someone going, something happening in a former restaurant chain that 20,000 people read. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Like if I were to write a story about the, the obscenely long line that extends out into the, you know, the main road at Cane's, like chicken that would get tens of thousands of reads, whereas a story about evictions and eviction rates is not going to get as much readership. Do you have an example of something you've done that was impactful in the community? I wrote one over the summer about a an emergency shelter for people who are unhoused and also like medically vulnerable. So it's a lot of people who are seniors who are either terminally ill or seriously ill and they literally have nowhere else to go like this is a low barrier or no barrier shelter which is rare and so pandemic funds helped this 
open and it's going to be closed in April and these people are going to have nowhere to go. So I got to know the folks who are staying there. And, you know, my friend Aza Amos came up and took photos of these folks as we were talking. And like the, or the director of the, of the shelter said that since that story came out, a bunch of opportunities have opened up for their clients, like housing vouchers or temporary housing so that they can, you know, get their paperwork in order and all this stuff. And I, I saw that I just like cried. <laughs> it's like, you almost never get to hear this kind of thing, you know? So it, to, to have hopefully made at least a little bit of a difference in the lives of our truly most vulnerable community members is like, if, if I don't do journalism after today, I, I think I would kind of carry that with me forever. Are there other things that characterize your reporting? Well, that's a really hard question. So I asked my editors and one, so Jesse, our managing editor, she tells me that I work backwards that most journalists will find an issue first and then they find their sources. Whereas people come to me with their stories and that leads me to the issue. So I always have way more stories than I can write at a time because of that. I'm really fortunate to have the trust of a lot of people in my community particularly people who haven't been asked about themselves or about their stories. And so I think my reporting is very person first as well. And it's usually not almost never motivated by or focused on people in power. It's the, like, it, it's the average normal ordinary person who, who becomes the, the focus of you know, the story I'm writing, but also who I'm writing for usually. And then my editor-in-chief, she says that I find really good singer quotes, like not gotchas, but that are clever and, you know, paint a picture of what's really happening. And um, that's always a fun thing for me. There were definitely a couple in the bathroom story, which will be linked in the show notes, which really people should read. Thank you. <laughs> so... The other aspect of Charlottesville, when people think of it and hear the name of the city now, they typically think of it as the home of the University of Virginia, but in 2017, it became known for the Night the Right white supremacist rally that resulted in the murder of a city resident, Heather Heyer. It was not the first such rally in the city, which has taken down statues of Confederate generals. You were on the ground. You covered it for Charlottesville Weekly, another publication that you mentioned already. What was it like to experience that? Yeah, so before we talk about that, I do want to acknowledge that I'm a cisgender, heterosexual white woman. And so while I saw an experience like horrible, terrible, horrifying and terrifying things, you know, that whole summer and in the that weekend and the aftermath, like I wasn't as vulnerable as so many of my neighbors. Being both a community member and a journalist, was a really unusual position to be in. So, you know, take the the Unite the Right rally on August 12th. I had Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists spitting on me, telling me to die, threatening to kill me, as they were doing to plenty of other folks around town. Like that wasn't unique to me, to journalists. 
But I also had anti-fascist people throughout the community, which for the record, I am also against fascism. I am anti-fascist. But I also had those folks screaming in my face, telling me that I was part of the problem. And that was really hard to like sit with both of those things. So I know that the paper I worked for at the time, Siva Weekly, we made some mistakes you know, in, in some of the coverage leading up to the rally of these of these white supremacists, of these groups. And on a personal level, I was just so woefully unaware of so much of that before that summer. And I really wish I had known more. Like I wasn't completely in the dark because I was listening to activists in the community who were really aware of like what was being talked about on Reddit, 4chan threads, all of that stuff. And from their own experience, right? So for a while after that, I, I didn't feel like I had much of a place in my community. And it's also like the only thing that I reported on for a really long time. So it was this constant, like people telling me their stories, their perspective, their experience. So before I could even digest my own experience as a person, I was being a journalist and trying to be respectful and take care of the stories that my neighbors were telling me. And these are people who are physically injured, who were friends with Heather Heyer, who were like abused that day. I mean, it was, it was a lot. And for a long time, I think I really felt like I had failed those folks in my community who were physically and emotionally injured or who, who died. And so I believe that journalism is a really powerful thing and it can do a lot of good in the world, but I have no delusions about what it can't do. I think it can help make the world better and prevent some bad things from happening, but it's like not, it's not the ultimate fix by a long shot. So like kind of being a community journalist in this way, like I'm a person first always. And that's something I, I, kind of lost sight of after Unite the Right. So like being someone who's affected by what happens in my community, in the community I report in, makes me a better journalist because I can understand nuances and consequences in ways that outside journalists can't. And that's not by any fault of their own. They just don't live here. And, you know, I'm stopped on the sidewalk. I'm stopped in the grocery store and parking lots on my way to the record store, all of that by by my neighbors. And so I'm very accountable to them as a journalist and as a person. So it makes me a better reporter, but it makes it harder. <laughs> and while it makes me a better reporter, it makes reporting harder. And I could give you a concrete example. So there's an ongoing lawsuit about the Robert E. Lee statue, which was like a major flashpoint for Unite the Right. And so after some legislation in Virginia changed in 2021, the city voted to take down racist statues from public view and decided to rehome them through a like an acquisition process. Different entities or individuals had to submit proposals saying what they would do with the statue, et cetera. So there's currently a lawsuit over the city deciding to give the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee to the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center here in Charlottesville. The Heritage Center was very transparent in its intentions for the statue and in its application to acquire it. They intend to melt the bronze statue of Lee and his horse, Traveler, down into ingots and use that metal to create a new statue of the community's choice. So there's this ongoing lawsuit. And 
A couple of Confederate legacy groups want the city to redo its process, saying that they couldn't legally give the statue to an organization or entity that would destroy it. So I've written a lot about the statues. I've written about the various applications that people sent to acquire it, about the removal of various statues, how they've affected people in the community, about the Jefferson School African-American Heritage Center's plan for it, because they were the only local organization actually to submit a proposal for Lee. So I wrote about the lawsuit over the summer and it was really difficult and I like couldn't figure out why. And a few weeks ago, I went to court to listen to a hearing about it and I could not write the story. Like the draft I wrote was a mess. I didn't have full sentences. My grammar was a disaster. My language was all, eh. and my editor was really frustrated and confused. She was like, you're not acting like yourself. She's like, every time you write about the statue, about the lawsuit, you turn into a different person. Get nervous, defensive. I can't articulate my ideas. I don't write in my voice. Like that snappy bathroom story, nothing even close to it. It's like, sure, it's a different tone, but like, you know, I wasn't writing in my voice. And that's that's the PTSD that I have from that weekend. It's diagnosed, I've been treated, but it's still really hard. And it took me months to realize that like months I've written so many stories about this and yet you know it took me a while to get there so I'm one of the only local reporters who covered Unite the Right who's still reporting in Charlottesville some people have left the profession some have left Charlottesville I have the context I should be able to cover it right but I just I, I can't it triggers terrible things for me and I made the decision with my editor to not cover that anymore, both for my own mental health and for the community. Like, I'm not going to write a helpful story for them. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be clear. It's not going to be helpful. So, like, in that way, it's it's made reporting more difficult. It's really hard to sit, to say, like, I can't write about that anymore. I appreciate your being willing to share that with myself and with the people that, that are listening. What are the things that characterize the people of Charlottesville as it currently stands? Well, it's like any other place, right? Like it's full of problems, but it's also full of people who are actively working towards solutions. Our former mayor, Nakia Walker, used to say that Charlottesville is like ugly, beautiful or beautiful and ugly. It's got both, right? Like it's a beautiful place with a lot of ugliness or an ugly place with a lot of beauty. So it's it's a community like so many other. What I love is that people here, I wonder in part if it's because of what we all experienced as a community together, that there's a lot of support for people. Like when I was laid off from my job at Civil Weekly, hundreds of people reached out to me. Like I, I'm not exaggerating. It took me a week to respond to all the messages. I had people drop groceries off at my doorstep. I had people bring me meals. I had people who I had met like once, like send me $20 on Venmo. And I was like, that's amazing. And you don't have to do that, but thank you so much. Cause it was, it was a struggle because, you know, journalists don't make a lot of money. We all know this. And I didn't have any savings <laughs> from that job. So I just, I felt so supported and buoyed by the community. And that, when that happened, it's like, I, yeah, I, I think that's, sure. that's a special thing about Charlottesville is like, 
the community is strong. People help each other a lot. And you're a, you've lived in the city for 13 years? 13 years. Yep. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Seville Weekly. You mentioned mm-hmm. that people felt very connected to you. I do want to address the things that you wrote for that that as well. And that's oh, yeah. a completely different world. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Uh, culture, music, and art. I've seen pieces. You did one on a woman who wanted to save the world one seat as a, at a time, as it was phrased. A local artist using hot dogs as his primary character. And a lot, a lot, a lot of pieces about local music. The language, your language was different. It was very loose. It was very... You know, very mm-hmm. informal. You're very into scene setting. A lot of very descriptive leads that capture the environs. And again, we'll include links in the show notes. Um, is there a story that you're particularly proud of? What What was it about that kind of writing that you liked? Any number of things that we could talk about here. Kind of take your pick. Oh my gosh, there's so many. It's like some of them are so fun, like the hot dog wheat paste, because I could use all these puns, right? Like that just opens up a whole different writing style. And I loved that. The music stuff was always really fun, but I think, hmm, so there are actually two stories that are connected. So a few years ago, which is maybe many years ago now, I don't know like what day it is half the time anymore, but I wrote about this young local artist, Sahara Clemens. She was like 15 or 16 at the time. She was really talented. I knew her mom through various things and she had her first ever gallery show. And I was like, well, that's really cool. Like a young artist, a young black artist in town getting a gallery show. I want to write about this. So I interviewed Sahara at this like kind of like hippie tea bazaar place that we have in town. And her mom, like I had to get her mom's permission. Her mom was like, totally fine. She's also like very shy. So it might take her a while to warm up. So we had a, we had a great conversation and the, like, I loved writing the piece and we, you know, we keep in touch because I would see her around town. I went to the opening. She ended up going to Rhode Island school of design and was just like killing it. Like she's doing an amazing job. So actually the last story that I wrote for SIVA weekly before I got laid off was a second story about Sahara doing a big mural on the side of a building in town. And it, it faces one of the public housing developments or communities, I should say, in Charlottesville. And it's a black woman lying down. She's at rest, but she's also holding like light. And it was such a powerful image. And it was like, so cool to be able to interview her again as she had just, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say she wasn't like her own person before, but like, you know, when you, when you grow and you mature, it was just so great to like revisit her work and, and her as an artist and that piece. And so that just, that meant a lot to me that, that I had, that I had been there enough time to actually be able to cycle back. Right. And to show that and to talk with her and, um, it was the perfect piece to end my time at Siva Weekly and my time as an arts reporter on. It just, it said kind of everything that I had wanted. I'd always wanted to make sure that artists who, you know, artists of color, female artists, femme artists, non-binary artists, I mean, all of it, I like who don't usually get that space or who historically haven't been. It was really important for me to feature that. Where did the empathy for 
for non-white and, and people that that might have been struggling? Where did that come from? Oh gosh, it's kind of hard to to say because growing up, I was around a lot of different types of people. I went, you know, Boston has a terrible reputation as a very racist place, which yes, so is everywhere in America. But I always had friends from different backgrounds. So I was never, you know, I was never just around like a bunch of middle-class white kids. I was around people of so many backgrounds and I just, I guess, could, like I, I, my friends not feeling seen, my friends not feeling heard, my friends missing out on opportunities because of what they looked like or how much money their family made. And I thought that was bullshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I still think it is. So I think it was just, to me, it was really obvious of like, why, like, why aren't these folks also featured in these stories? Why is it such a narrow perspective? And like, my definition of art is also really broad. So that just opened up a whole other world of, of that for me, but yeah. I, I feel like you've kind of answered this already, but how has being a journalist shaped how you view the world? I think it's made me a kinder and more thoughtful person. It's also made me a lot more stressed out. Like <laughs> when in in the work that I've chosen to do, like I've chosen to do this work. Like I wasn't born a journalist. This is what I choose to do. But like every day confronting a broken system and the people that it breaks is like just... It, it can be really devastating. And, you know, I think that's the hardest part of the job is the emotional toll. It's really hard to carry these stories with you. It's not like I finish a story and then it's out and it's like, oh, everything's great. Like I can go back to feeling, you know, it's like the other night there was a shooting down the street from my apartment. And I thought immediately of like the six people that I've talked to who live on that street, you know, I was just like, oh my gosh, are they okay? Like, it was a boy who was shot. Like, three of them have sons. Like, what, what, you know? So you're always carrying that with you. And I'm not the best at maintaining boundaries. Like, I, I am a very ethical journalist. But when you see people all the time, when you walk by their house, it's, it's hard to, to not carry that with you my challenge is not not letting it drag me down for sure we've had a recent run of journalists that have other hobbies or passions that kind of run alongside what they do our most recent was actually a volleyball is actually a volleyball coach in your case you're a radio dj can you tell us uh, just briefly about that oh gosh yeah that's like one of my 10 extracurriculars so I, <laughs> like, basically, as soon as I got out of the arts and culture reporting, I was like, oh, I can participate in it now. So I've been a DJ at our community radio station, WTJU 91.1 FM in Charlottesville and online everywhere, WTJU.net. I co-host Ye Old Tuesday Afternoon Rock Show and an all vinyl punk hardcore and Outer Limits show called Black Circle Revolution. I also play in a couple of bands. One of them is called Films on Song. The other one is still new, so we don't really have anything out there, but I play bass guitar. I have a really cool custom-built green phantom guitar works, phantom bass, 
if anyone's familiar with Joy Division, it kind of looks like the guitar that Ian Curtis, their front person, would would play. And it's just, it sounds amazing. It was a gift for my partner for my birthday. And I I'm, I love it so much. And my partner and I also book shows. We book music shows here in town at a place called Visible Records that also has like art gallery space, affordable artist studios, an anti-fascist bookshop, and all this, like it, it's just a cool activity center. So we do a couple of months to to make sure that, you know, again, bands or artists or types of music that maybe wouldn't normally get booked at a venue would will have a place to play. So. Sounds awesome. Great, a great yeah. kind of side thing to go along with what you do journalistically. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you'd like to salute? So at Charlottesville Tomorrow, we're part of this initiative called the Charlottesville Inclusive Media Project. And so we partner with Vinegar Hill Magazine, and which is a, mag- a print magazine and online. But we also partner with In My Humble Opinion, which is a, a talk show locally. And both of those organizations are Black-led media organizations. And they're carrying on a legacy of Black-led media in town that was, you know, non-existent for a little while. It was very robust because for a long time, Charlottesville was actually a majority Black city. And we had Black newspapers. We had all of that. And then, you know, racism and white people ruined that. So in recent years, they've they've just put so much into reviving that and to making sure that black residents and not just not just always black residents but you know brown native because it's you know obviously not just black and white but you know black residents in particular after everything that white residents have put them through they really deserve that representation and they deserve to have publications and radio shows that that are for them and by them and about them and I think that's amazing and and they do all of this with like such like so their resources are not what they should be you know it's like they're doing this often volunteer and with very little money and we try to support them as much as we can at Charlottesville tomorrow but like I think they're doing amazing work and and it's like they're doing this because they love this place and they love this community and they're like we need this. And I, I just, I think they're great. I'm so fortunate to be part of an organization that's affiliated with them, but I was a fan before I joined the Charlottesville Tomorrow Newsroom. So I think, I think Vinegar Hill Magazine, in in my humble opinion, get my salute. They sound very salute worthy, certainly. Erin O'Hare, Neighborhoods Reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Thank you for joining us and we will be following your work. Thanks so much, Mark. This has been great. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a small local nonprofit news outlet that is community-driven and socially conscious. Its values are trust, community, and equity. Charlottesville is its place. Tomorrow is its focus. To learn more, go to civilletomorrow.org. That's C-V-I-L-L-E tomorrow.org. We thank Erin O'Hare for sharing her story. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.